0: What do we see about this power couple? I mean, these guys are amazing, and we'll see why as we look at their relationship. How do you know your marriage, my marriage, how do you know if we're getting some things right? Well, if we use them as a model, number one, you're getting it right if you've yielded your marriage and ministry to God's sovereignty and providence. I don't know if you theologians among us have ever done any studies about what's the difference between sovereignty and providence. John, can you help us? Don't go there. It's an interesting thing I asked Sue. She got it first time, so I don't know why we need the theologians. We're all theologians. But she said, um, sovereignty is recognizing God's ultimate rule and reign and control of all things. Providence is how he acts within that to choreograph the circumstances of our lives and to be involved in a way that we can, from time to time, that was providential. Wow, that was just amazing. We didn't see it coming, and God just stepped in. And that's God's personal touch out of his sovereignty. I hope that's helpful. Providence comes from the Latin pro, videre, uh, which means seeing in advance and, uh, and then ordaining what he, uh, whatever comes to pass. It's God's hand in our lives. And so, in what way were Priscilla and Aquila uh, yielded to God's uh, sovereignty and providence? Well, it's very interesting to notice they're a young married couple, just give me a little bit of latitude here, they're in love, Uh, they haven't started the family yet, I'm assuming, scriptures are silent on that, and all of a sudden, they uh, turn on the TV in their room and there's an edict from Caesar that all the Jews have to get out of Rome now we don 't know if it was Jewish commotion or Jewish Christian commotion, but suddenly the Jews were not popular in Rome, and uh, they got the boot, and uh, they 're on their way now, going from Rome and they 're journeying uh, east to Corinth. Now, just imagine what are the conversations that you 're having when you 've lost everything. That you owe. Maybe they've got a bit of cash. Fortunately, they've got a they've got a they got a trade. But um, you know, how does Paul talk to his his lovely little wife in those in those moments? And what the scriptures don't capture is uh, any sort of victimhood. No pity parties. It, you see them arriving in Corinth, and whilst they Are experiencing this this incredibly difficult movement, we see the hand of God moving in Paul, who is moving uh, westward toward Corinth, and in a matter of a relatively short period of time, uh, Paul finds Priscilla and Aquila because they were of the same trade. Now, when they came to faith is interesting. There's like three or four versions of this, and I'm not going to Get all uh, hung up on it, but uh, some say it would have been from uh, the gatherings in Jerusalem when they went up for Pentecost. There were other times they might have gone up for some of the feasts. Uh, other commentators suggest that it was Peter who'd had an influence on their lives. I don't want to get stuck on that, but what seems apparent is that they now get involved in business. They've got to make the best out of life. They've got to yield to less than ideal circumstances. Their lives, there's a new script for their lives. They didn't see it coming, but they're now in this amazing city of Corinth. How many of you know, you know, they once said, what good comes out of uh, Nazareth? And of course, what, a, what an answer, Jesus Christ comes out of now. What good comes out of Corinth? And uh, when we see the unfolding story of what happens in Corinth, they are shareholders in this amazing uh, uh, birth of the church. And uh, I heard Steve this morning uh, challenge us about, do we really believe that God works all things uh, together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose? Do we really believe in the all things? And here's a young couple, uh, and, and of course, Paul, who wrote the verse, who seemed to yield themselves to the doctrine of sovereignty. My friends, God has given us a lot of responsibilities in this life, but He has not given us control. He's given us responsibility. We have to respond to the light we have, to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to the obedience of Scripture, but there's a whole lot of stuff that'll happen in this life that'll affect your life and my life that we do not have any control over. In 1996, Sue and I went through one of the worst periods in our life. I had... uh, not love my wife like I should, I was selfish, I had not served her like I should, I had not uh, partnered in the way we are uh, uh, calling ourselves to today, and it was an incredibly, deeply painful life. More than that, we'd handed over a church in the city of uh, Johannesburg, And it's a church that now is on 10 acres of land and it has a Christian school and was a great, uh, we planted that church, we pioneered it, but now we're in transition and we had all our goods in Stutterford van lines on our way to Australia. And in the middle of that move, the bottom fell out of the Australia move and we find ourselves in Cape Town, I know Steve's thinking, wow, God delivered you from going to Australia. What a great thing. Who wants to go to Australia? But the truth is, it was was such a painful time, and uh, uh, we were caught between an assignment we thought we were on into this sense of no man's land, and it was in that season that the Lord began to speak to me about how I was loving my wife, how I was serving her. And I've always loved Sue But I don't think I've always loved her in a sacrificial sense. I don't think I've always honored her. I don't think I've always welcomed her voice in my life like I should. And uh, that was the beginning of some hours and hours of prayer on a local beach and crying out to God to do something in my heart and help me. And the crisis was such that we were in a town where we hardly knew anyone because we were from Joburg on our way to Australia and now we're in Cape Town and the bottom had fallen out and basically we just held at each other and there were nights that we would just sob in each other's arms trying to make sense of this. But the crisis itself threw us together in a way that we would never ever have been able to deepen our relationship. And it was in that time that a door opened to Pastor Forty. To 50 people in the city of Cape Town. They needed a pastor and this all took about a year and then they said, would you come and be our pastor? And uh, we prayed it through and said yes to that and we limped into the assignment which is now Common Ground, which is nine churches across the city. I want to say to you, there is a direct relationship to the way we husband our wives and wife our husbands and the fruitfulness of our churches ultimately. There is a symbiotic relationship that I think is both biblical and experiential. And what we sometimes we're longing for a certain set of results, but we're working on the wrong frontier. We think it's all about getting the ministry uh, sorted out, and what are the latest strategies about small group, and how are we going to do multi-site, and multi-church, and all of those things, uh, except God got a hold of us and said, I want to equip you to do marriage and I want you to learn to submit and yield your life to the doctrines of sovereignty and providence and welcome my hand. The Holy Spirit had said to me um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very, very lonely place, just this whisper, prepare yourself for what I have for you. And I, at that time, just to make ends meet, I, was, I had a small business and he said to me, sell this business and get ready for what I have for you. I sold the business the very next day Providence, Sovereignty. God sent a man into my office who said, you won't believe what I've just done. I knew him. I've met him three times before. I said, what have you done, Paul? He said, I've just resigned from my church. I immediately said to him, what about the people? God had broken me and given me not just a fresh love for my wife, but he gave me a fresh love for our city, a fresh love for a new context and a new missional horizon. And it was something that I, even to this day, uh, we limped into the assignment, and we needed to get healed up, and it took a while, uh, but I look at those, those days as severe mercies under God's gracious hand. The second w- way you know you're, you're in this kind of missional marriage is that you make decisions with your spouse based on spiritual Intimacy. There's not a single verse that I read out of those six passages where either Priscilla or Aquila are apart. Now, I'm not suggesting they weren't apart and that she didn't buy the milk and he didn't buy the newspaper at different times. I'm just suggesting that when they punch their, their hole in history, as it were, because that's what we witnesses do. As they punch their hole into history, the Holy Spirit seems to want to record their story as this couple. Are they elders? Are they members of an apostolic team? Did they lead a house church? Whatever it is, you can't be 100% sure, but you know they were in the game, and you know they were doing it together in a way that they were partnering. And uh, Sue will share a few things later about about making decisions uh, uh, when when I call her up in a moment. But... uh, uh, they're, they're, they're inseparable, as it were. They're yoked together. And I've done some reading. Uh, a guy by the name of Haber, uh in 1979, he, he wrote some stuff about different levels of intimacy, and it's old stuff, but it really applies today. He spoke about the different dimensions of in, uh, intimacy. He says, togetherness is a multifaceted thing that involves every dimension of our lives. There is emotional intimacy, which is the deep-sharing of significant feelings. Gentlemen, you've got to have one, more than one emotion a year. Trick question coming out, I want you to think of which is the most catalytic of these intimacies. The second one is intellectual intimacy, which is the sharing in the world of ideas. There's aesthetic intimacy, which is, is, the, is the deep sharing of experiences of beauty. There's creative intimacy, The sharing of acts of creativity, there's recreational intimacy, the uh, sharing of activities and and fun, there's work intimacy, the sharing in common tasks, there's crisis intimacy, standing together against the buffeting of life, there's spiritual intimacy, the sharing of ultimate concerns, there's sexual intimacy, now I know the guys are not going to sleep, which is the celebration of the marriage, it's not the marriage, guys, And true togetherness comes as we experience multiple facets of of intimacy. So what do you think is the most catalytic form of intimacy? I'm not going to fight you if you want to differ with me on this. You're quite entitled to be wrong. (coughs) I learned from my friend John here. Well, some of the research around intimacy is making a case for intellectual intimacy the ability to communicate and hear ideas together and is very necessary. It builds intellectual intimacy, builds emotional intimacy and causes one to feel loved. And so the encouragement to start talking to one another more, listen with ears of love as you grow in your relationship and, uh, and work on the other pillars of intimacy as well. Intellectual intimacy is closely tied to emotional uh, intimacy as it refers to a level of stimulation in the conversation. That's why it's dangerous if you're not talking to your wife and you're talking to other women, you might be attracted to them in many other ways, but when, our, when the mind starts to to connect, uh, in a way it's very easy for uh, uh, people who've been neglected in that area to start to get uh, uh, you know, feelings and emotions that are, that are not healthy. When we look at Priscilla and Aquila, question, do, the, do it. I just want you to, to, to be part of this talk. Think about it. What levels of intimacy do you think they would have had in their relationship? Uh, you know, some of those. I, I, I thought of six, and uh, maybe you, you, you're thinking some others. How many of you would say they would agree with you, They had work and economic intimacy, they had creative intimacy. Because tent making then wasn't just uh, making an army tent like this. The, the tent makers there were involved in sails for ships, yachts, all kinds of ships, and they were involved in doing coverings and awnings for the Corinthian games and all the outdoor sports and that. So there would have been, I would imagine, creative intimacy. Uh, do you think they had crisis intimacy? How many times? Well, they got booted from Rome twice. Because the second time they left Rome after they'd got back, uh, it, was, it was Corinth to Antioch, Ephesus, and eventually back to Rome. We're not sure of all the, the routings they took, but they ended back in Rome, and then Nero did his fire, and now by this time, they've built a beautiful house on one of the slopes there, and then the fire burnt that down, and they had to leave a second time, having lost everything. I would imagine they knew about Christ's intimacy. And maybe there were some others. I think they probably would have had a high level of intellectual intimacy, particularly because of their ability to unpack the Scriptures or the polis. I'm just making a case for we can begin to sink our lives at a deeper level together and not always outsource those needs to people outside of a relationship. We can dig a little deeper. And can I have a yeah? yeah. Oh, thanks to the three of you all-expenses trip to Mauritius, uh, care of Stephen Ryan in the front here. The third thing we say about uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila is, is, is they were anchored in God's word together and mentors to others. Now, in our complementarian theology in our riverbanks, of how we do ministry and how we partner together, and I think there's a whole lot we can do together. I just want you to observe that they both had a theology here, that they both had an ability to make a read on what was wrong with Apollos' theology. We're not gonna go into the actual Bible study they did, but they were remarkable in their ability to gently just take him aside and skillfully bring correction. There's probably very much this thing of uh, we praise people in public, but we correct them in private. What can we do as couples to stimulate uh, this, this sense of being anchored in God's word together? Well, Sue and I started a little adventure at the beginning of our uh, sabbatical. Uh, who of you have heard of the Bible Project? Yeah, everybody. How many of you have heard of the Read Scripture app? Well, Sue and I are on page, or on day 116, and we've made a commitment. We're thinking, we're gonna start reading the Bible together, and the way it works is you read all these chapters, sort of four or five a day, and then you read a Psalm, and then you pray together, And nobody's watching. We've just decided that for this season of our lives, whatever God has for us, we want to dial in, not to the itsy-bitsy little parts of this verse that needs to be exegeted. uh, No, we want to fall in love again with the grand narrative of what God is doing in the world. And the way the Bible Project uh, uh, or the Read Scripture app works is there's no verses in the chapter. So you don't get stuck and you don't go back. You're picking up the grand themes. And we're having an absolute ball in doing that, and then we land in reflecting upon what stood out in terms of the big picture issues, and then we pray together. And uh, I just want to encourage you that we can do this. It's difficult for younger families, and you can take a, run, a longer run at that, and you can do it over over two or three years if you want to, but I'm just saying there are ways that we can be anchored in God's Word Together and be on standby when we're pastoring people, helping people, because uh, the scriptures are rooted in our hearts. The fourth thing I want you to notice is uh, you've gotten everything together, side by side marriage, when you're serving people. When you're serving people. I mean, that sounds so odd and unsexy. Oh, we're serving people. Of course, you're serving people. But uh, Priscilla and Aquila are just such a wonderful model of the way. They did that. I mean, the the way they are spoken of uh, earlier in those verses that we read together, uh, it says, Greek Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. I want to see the video footage of what went down there. What did they do that was a significant rescue for the Apostle Paul? And then he expands this a so double clicks on their servanthood muscle, as it were, and he says, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. This is a power couple, and they're giving thanks because they're the recipients of grace that is flowing from this particular couple. I love the fact that uh, these guys are, are so... Uh, or so, so, so busy teaming together, and uh, more than that, you'll notice, if all the churches are giving thanks, they developed a, a missional track record that extended beyond just their calling and placement originally in Corinth. There's now this move to Antioch, and then to Ephesus, and then back to Rome, and back to Corinth. It's, I'm not suggesting that all of us need to be itinerant I'm just wanting to challenge us a little. It seems like they were so in love with each other and the mission of Jesus that they were always up for a new assignment. And in praying for this conference, I felt like some of you need to be open to the possibility of God stirring some new assignments as long as you're you're. You're working it out with your leaders and with people you're accountable to. Uh, I don't think you're going to get into trouble with God if you're saying, Jesus, I want to see my city, my context filled with the life, fame, and message of Jesus Christ. I think the devil will get into a lot of trouble when we start to do that. But here's this couple. Their servanthood wasn't this nice namby-pamby, play it safe. All we do is, uh, you know, they, they seem to be wonderfully adventurous, and uh, I think there's some people who, hearing this part, of your 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 life, your ministry, you're stuck in a little bit of a rut, and uh, and you think that a new context is going to open up. Get your marriage excited about serving the purposes of God, go for some prayer walks in the forest, start to pray big prayers back to God and start to volunteer yourself to Him. And sometimes you won't need to move anywhere else. He'll just make you fall in love with your own context a little bit more or suddenly a whole lot of people will be knocking on your doors, asking for your wisdom, asking uh, for your help. And uh, I think I'm going to finish that point right there. How many of you needed to hear that one? Just the two of you? Okay. Okay, just the two of you. And I'm, just very quickly before Sue comes up, the other thing you'll notice, you're getting it right when your home is open, this thing of warm hospitality as a secret weapon. Now, I'm not saying everybody is wired the same way, and I'm making a case, but if you look at the number of times that the reference to the church in their home, there's a sense in which they probably understood all those parables of Jesus and meals and interactions. You don't have to be a signs and wonders super apostle, although may God give us many of those gifts in our midst. But there is something supernatural and powerful about hearts and homes that are open. None of the congregations in common ground are led by leaders that haven't had serious amounts of time run around our dining room table. A little while back, we, we extended our dining room and our, table, our dining room table was too small. Uh, we found a really master craftsman who, and we found a table which was almost impossible but we believe in this providence, don't we? But I saw on the internet a table in another city in South Africa of the same bevel on the edge of this table from the 1950s, and I got it shipped down to Cape Town, and this master craftsman, he took this table, cut mine in two, put this new one in the middle, and connected it, and there's this little piece of wood in the middle, because he had to make it go a little bit like that, to widen to the edges. And the story has been fantastic, as we've sat with people, they say, what's all this uh, woodwork, and I said, it's about getting you around the table, and uh, folk, there's something about people are incredibly vulnerable when they're in your home. And let me just free us, because I know the pace of life, the business of life. It's not fine dining. It's not very expensive meals. It can be soup and rolls. It can be just the, the warmth of uh, invitation uh, where people are welcome, leaders are welcome, seekers are, are welcome, and in our case, grandchildren. Bye. And the last point, and then uh, just to get, how many has he got? Oh, shut up. (laughs) You know, I just, last point, and then my wife will come up and put us all to shame. You know, you've gotten everything together, side-by-side marriage. That when people are in crisis, they think of you as a couple. We've been astounded about how many people seek us out. What I help from unbelievers. Where do, we get this, where do we get this from in the story uh, of Priscilla and Aquila? Well, I'm glad you've asked. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter four and verse 19, this is magnificent. He says, do your best to come to me soon for Demas. He's in love with this world, present world, and has deserted being gone to Thessalonica. Crescent has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. Tychicus I uh, sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and also the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did, great, did me great harm. May the Lord repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Paul's not having a pity party here. Just watch how this plays out. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The next verse. Here's the guy. In the evening of his life, the curtains are about to fall. And he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. People are in their worst moment. Do they remember you? Because if your marriage is animated by some of the stuff we've been speaking about, it's gonna get the attention of a, of a watching world. It's gonna get attention of people around us who are witness, witnesses to our lives. In the midst of all these records of people who'd abandoned Paul, this couple had not, and brought healing and, and, and music to his heart. What I love about these guys is they're not the heroes of the faith, And I think their model of marriage and ministry is incredibly accessible for us people in the room today. And I commend them to all of us as a sign and a wonder, as a faithful presence. What I also love is that Priscilla and Aquila can't be ignored. And I want us to have these kind of marriages that can't be ignored. The gospel got a hold of, listen carefully, got a hold of, not just their individual hearts, the gospel got a hold of their marriage. In fact, we need to preach the gospel to the world, and we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, but these guys are an example of a couple who preached the gospel to their marriage. The good news of Jesus Christ and seemed to just be this delightful reference point. You can punch a hole in history, and I want to be part of that till my dying breath now let's put our hands together for the main part of the show and uh, put our hands come on my sweetie pa, you're so fantastic <laughs> she says I'm so bad I mean come on guys so she's just going to share a little from her heart around uh, some of the practical outworkings of uh, how we do it and how we needed to grow and learn etc yeah
1: I think some learnings from us and um uh, we've often thought that in, in 42 years of marriage, we haven't so much had marriage problems. And I think when you, when you hear me unpack that, you'll probably realize the same for yourselves. That in 42 years of marriage, we've never had marriage problems or um, uh, challenges, but we've had many and probably way too many discipleship problems, <laughs> especially you, Rigby. Yes. Um, I, I
0: resemble that comment. Mm-hmm.
1: So, when we started to concentrate on our discipleship area, when we really took that seriously, we really found that that um, almost as a fruit of that, our marriage started to improve and be better and and really function the way that it should. All the time, I was concentrating on my role as a wife, <laughs> and um, and really kind of um, thinking of how I could be a better wife, and all the pressure that comes with it. Where I was going wrong, um, I was that always comes in relation to another person. It came in relation to Rigby and how I was going to please him more. But if I if I concentrated more on my discipleship and where. the the character things that were really, you know, that we we bring things into a marriage and we were so young, I was 19, he was 21, and what did we know? So you bring all these things into your marriage and you never kind of get to a place where you really start dealing with insecurities, jealousy, um, how to um, uh, get an agreement, all those kind of things. So I really did um, have to start concentrating a lot on those things. so things like mutual submission um, instead of um, hostility, things like anger, things like um, um, yeah, your identity issues, things that you you bring into your marriage as a young couple. <clears throat> so we, and then as a, a sadness, you know, the other day I was just looking at some some old photographs. I was looking at some pictures to, for Rigby to take to Nepal with him. And I started to look through some old um, photographs of couples that we've kind of done life with over the years and just sadly, how many of them have ended in separation, divorce, they just haven't, um, haven't made it, you know, they've just, um, you know, for whatever reason. And Rigby will often say, you know, marriage, in all the years that we've been marrying people and there've they've been many, there've been probably, I don't know, 100. a few hundred. But he said, in all those years, we've never ever seen a marriage fail. But we've seen many people fail their marriage, and there's, there's such a big difference, um, you know, in that. So we, uh, you know, as a result, a lot of single people even look at marriage and think, you know, why? Why should we get marriage? What are the chances of me being one of those statistics? Um, but the question to ask is not so much um, the marriage. The the institution of marriage was given to us. Um, it should be a it should be a beacon of hope in a community. I look at people like John, I've never met John, but just seeing him up here today, talk about 50 years of marriage and and the many years of, of happy ministry. And that gives me something to aspire to. We all need older people in our communities to give hope and um, encouragement that life can be, can be done together. Marriage is a crucible. It's, it's so difficult, um, and so many single people want to be married, but actually being married is really, it's really difficult. It is a, it's a crucible for discipleship, as are other things like parenting. So don't look at marriage and think, I'm not going to get marriage, married because it doesn't work. But the question to ask is, how will I be a, a really good disciple in my marriage to be everything that God wants me to be? Um, Paul Tripp um, in his book, So What Were You Thinking? I don't know if any of you have read that, but he, you know, his definition of marriage is two incredibly selfish people who who make a commitment to one another to get their own way for the rest of their life. <laughs> and you know, we all have this kind of very romantic um, definition of marriage, but actually it is. It's two very selfish people, and unless God redeems it and really um, has his way with you, we're not going to make it for the long haul. So someone once said, um, "You don't have to be married to be whole, but you have to be whole to stay happily married." And I really do believe that it's it's incredibly difficult. And we, when you do see marriages uh, break down and people, um, um, you know, um, let go of their marriages or whatever, it's because they haven't submitted their lives and their their discipleship area to to being what Jesus wants them to be.
0: I think we'll just land. There's a whole lot of little practical things. We don't want to bore you for too long, and we're happy to send a copy of the notes if anybody wants them, uh, for a small fee, of course. Um, I'd love, Sue, just to talk to us about the the difference between... uh, uh, a genuine spiritual level of agreement because you have this, sometimes we talk about we want to be in agreement as husband and wife. I'd love her to talk about, about what that should look like biblically and uh, and that also captures something of our journey. And uh, go for it, my love.
1: So we've just seen over the over the years how important it is to be in agreement before you make any decisions. And sometimes in your marriage, and I think it often can be, um, a wife-husband thing or a, a man-woman thing, but often you get to a point of consensus at very different uh, points in a, in a decision like a moving city or um, you get a job offer and the husband gets or wife gets a job offer or um, it's maybe a decision about having another child, which is a big one. And you often get to, you you take a long time to journey towards that point of decision, but it's so important that we are in agreement before we make decisions. So I often think, you know, um, Jesus uh, commands us to keep our unity in our hearts. So how much more should that work out with a husband and wife? It's not only unity in a, a lovely church community with brothers and sisters, but it's so important that we keep our unity here, no matter whether we agree on the decision or not. And um, consensus, we get to a consensus quite differently because it's quite cognitive. It's where we have to rationalize, where we have to grapple, where we have to bring in the pros and cons, and it just takes a a bit of time to get there. Um, So I often, um, I I see women sometimes um, taking a long time to process something. It's like you're thinking of your children, you're thinking of moving city, you're thinking of all the practical things, whereas sometimes a husband is just this is the decision and this is what we, we, we're gonna be doing. So for me, it's been so important for Rigby and I to maintain our unity, never to allow our, the process of decision-making to, to kind of um, make us feel um, you know, any, anything other than we're gonna do this thing together. It's,
0: it's but so I wanna push back at you now. So, so you and I, we wanna, make, we wanna do something like uh, you know, rob a bank because you've got a very expensive lifestyle and it's not always easy for me. So we wanna rob a bank and uh, we agree to do that. What's wrong with that? We're in agreement.
1: Okay, so we have to, um, with the example that Rigby has um, used with um, Priscilla and Aquila, we see that their unity and their agreement was very much—it was here, but it was a very—it was very um, vertical as well. They were in agreement with God, whereas we see another couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who colluded, where their um, agreement was just purely here. It was just something they were going to not rob a bank, but they were going to lie to the Holy Spirit. And so we can have this kind of agreement, but if it's not—if it's only horizontal and not not a vertical agreement, then. We don't have a biblical... um, And so for the first um,
0: 17 years of our marriage, the one thing we never, ever got right was praying together. And for the last 25, 42 and and 17, brilliant, give that man a bell. We have been learning the spiritual discipline of aligning our lives together in prayer. So it's one thing to have our life under God's sovereignty. It's another thing to keep yielding it there as a spiritual discipline. And we have found uh, the most wonderful, sweet sense of spiritual unity and consensus when we've made decisions. There are no power plays. We're seeking the Lord's best will in these things. So I'm not trying to, like I would have done in the past, sell something to Sue. I wanted us both to feel like God was... uh, or speaking to us and permitting or forbidding, and we find grace to face both. I think we're going to stop there because uh, you've probably had a really long, long day, and you have the, uh, uh, the, either the tremendous privilege. You know, I was in the men's toilet uh, before this session, and uh, I was just cleaning my hands, and I heard two guys say, who I will not embarrass publicly, they said, oh, this next session, probably you're going to see a whole lot of people leave. I mean, I'm the speaker. <laughs> so I said, to, hey, guys, I'm speaking. I just want you guys to know who said that. I forgive you totally, but I, I have a freeze frame of your faces. You will be here for the final session tonight. Come, Howard, come uh, land the session. Thanks, guys. Great privilege to serve you. Okay.